Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right, so I need to start by saying this is being recorded on Thursday, January 7th, 2021. It is the day after the Capitol was taken over by, I'll call them insurrectionists or domestic terrorists. Um, And maybe even saying that might sound controversial, but it is what it is. Uh, A bunch of folks uh, took over the Capitol uh, when there was supposed to be a ceremonial affirmation of the Electoral College finalizing the election process that um, will result in Joe Biden as president being inaugurated uh, two weeks from today or yesterday. I forget. My timeline is all off. But anyway, I just wanted to put that out there right at the top of the recording for context. Um, and with that, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll still welcome you to talking politics and religion without killing each other. Uh, seems more timely now. Uh, I'm your host, along with our co-host, my dad, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, Pop? As well as can be expected under the circumstances. Okay. All right. Yeah. And shout out to our my partner and our co-producer, Tristan Drew. And today's guest uh, is a really special person to me. We go back a long way. Uh, Kim has wor- Kim Yeager has worked for the U.S. Department of State, the United Nations, and is also an award-winning writer, having received the Kennedy Center Meritorious Achievement Award. I didn't know that one until I started prepping for this. Um, for her theater dance hybrid, America, which explores ethnicity, race, religion, and culture in the United States, as well as, and she's won many other awards, such as for her renowned work, Hypocrites and Strippers. What's even cooler than that, I just alluded to, is that Kim Yeager is from my hometown in New Jersey. And yeah, we both had the same high school English teacher as Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so Kim, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you guys for having me here. It's it's good to be here and it's it's nice to have space to process, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, instead of just diving into, it, it does seem pretty raw um, given what many of us were just um, stuck to our whichever news source of choice yesterday. Just, it reminded me a bit of when I woke up early on September 11th um, and just, I, I couldn't take my eyes away, but I, I don't want to talk about that. I, I as an elixir, I, I'd like to learn about you. Um, I, I know a little bit about your background, but let's dive into that. So uh, you, you did have Doc Hussey, Dr. Robert M. Hussey for yeah. high school English, right? Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate you mentioning Bruce because sometimes I feel like I imagine that, you know, like, like you know, like I, I actually do say that because, you know, nobody knows where our hometown is. And so like, if you have to reference it, you're like, it's next to where Bruce Springsteen grew up or something like that. So, you know, sometimes I feel like I make it up. So yes. 
No, it's true. And and <laughs> when when I read, I don't know if you're as much of a Bruce fan, Bruce fan as I am, but when you read his lyrics um, and how he captures something of the spirit of that corner of the world where we grew up, I I appreciate his um, his contribution to our culture. So well, it's I have a very funny relationship with it because I hated him. <laughs> uh, in, in, in 1984, I was I, I grew up a very big Prince fan. Oh. And for whatever reason, that made me like very anti Bruce Springsteen. And it wasn't until later. Well, and, and I also did you have did you have Jim Shiner as a teacher? He was like my ju- I think junior year English teacher. And so Shiner and I used to get into it. And it actually wasn't until I left which I guess is so typical when I left New Jersey and actually listened to his lyrics, I was like, Oh wow. Like he's completely like probably. And it's also so interesting. It's probably all the reason I loved Prince was about what he was talking about, what it was like, you know, some, a, a politically charged non uh, conforming human being growing up in a small town in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and, and so it wasn't until later in life that I realized um, that he was actually speaking to my experience and born in the USA wasn't celebrating the United States as it was, it was questioning the United States right. as, as it continues to be. And so it's, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, it is. I'm, and I'm certainly I, he's got wonderful lyrics. He's certainly inspiring. And how are teachers at that age, at that formative stage of our life? I brought up Doc Hussey partly because I know I, I had an affinity for Shakespeare a bit prior to his class, but he really helped me fall in love with the language and the craft and the virtuosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end of my senior year is when I, it was, that was the inspiration, if not the foundation, I ended up joining a Shakespearean repertory company. I was wondering if Doc had the same kind of influence on you. I, I am not a lover of Shakespeare. You know, there's certainly ought to be had. Um, I think he's an inspiration as a, as a, teacher you know like I, I feel like learning should have been more like that you know so that you don't dread being in school um and he helped people accountable like the whole package of doc Hussey, you know he's such a legacy you know so yes he he helped people love shakespeare but also he he held you accountable like he he made you show up you yeah. know you couldn't you couldn't nod off in doc Hussey's class <laughs> as an educator mm-hmm. uh, i spent 37 years in brooklyn high schools as a guidance counselor and assistant principal, Doc Hussey, as a parent and an educator, represents something much bigger than just the way he taught. Yeah. You had a guy in the 80s in a lily white community, many people who fled the city because they didn't want to send their kids to public school. And this was a black, openly gay man teaching high school kids who were white upper middle class kids and demanded so much respect for his intelligence and his dedication to his work that nothing else really mattered. It allowed people to cut right through stereotypes and figure out that character is more important than all the other stuff. At least that was my, that was my, reaction to Doc Hussey teaching my kids. I, I I agree with much of that. I don't necessarily agree that Manalapan was Lily White. I mean, we, we were predominantly white. I think that would be fair to say, but can, can, and can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, as we think of diversity now crossing, not just racial lines, but um, 
socioeconomic lines, um, uh, sexual identity lines. We had, we, maybe it was just our class, but I felt like we had a pretty diverse class. I find now been suffocating. Um, mm. As I got older, maybe it's the same way I was capable of getting to know Bruce Springsteen as opposed to judging him with my chip on the shoulder of being a teenager. Um, I have more understanding and compassion for Manalpin, but I personally found it an awful place to grow up. Mm. Um, and I felt for my parents, because like Ronnie said, my parents were part of the people that, um, you know, my mom grew up in a project, you, you know, my, my parents were in Brooklyn and, at, you know, now Brooklyn, of course, where they were living is soaring. But at the time they were like, quote unquote, trying to get a better I believe they were trying to find a better place for us to grow up, a safer place. But it has it has its pluses and minuses, right? Because if I were in a place that I think really was more diverse, or at least, I mean, diversity is such an interesting question, right? Because there's a diversity of ideas as well as a diversity of religion and look and race, or do you know what I mean? And and um, I don't think Manalapan embraces a diversity of ideas, or at least not when I was there. And, um, and you stood out, you, you know, like if, if you, if you didn't conform, you stood out. And I certainly think the, the people who are middle or lower class in Manalapan were not very uh, financially, I should say, of middle or lower class were not terribly comfortable. And I can't imagine it was a terribly comfortable place to not, to be black in, in particular, or any non-mainstream ethnicity. I, I think it's changed quite a bit. You know, freehold is very Latino now. Mm. Um, even being Jewish was like it was a little bit out of the norm. It's, you know, like when, when we first moved there, like the synagogues were held in the the, the religious services were held in firehouses because there yeah. were no synagogues. High schools, firehouses, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you studied both undergrad and graduate at Michigan. Yeah. What was the and and um, MFA in playwriting? Do I remember that right? Yeah. What, what was the program like? Why did you end up staying there for both undergrad and graduate work? Well, well I actually left. Um, oh. I, I had a, I think it was like three and a half years between. Um, and it was purely an accident, to be honest with you. you. You know, like, I think if I had more nerve, I probably would have left Michigan. It, it's actually a quite funny story. I was in Israel after high school. And, um, and I called home and I said to my mom, if I get put in Bursley, which was the 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 residents like up on north campus like it was like you know like the dorm nobody wanted to live in it's like if i get put into bursley i'm not going to school and then of course i got put into bursley and i didn't i didn't follow through on my threat and not going and 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 truthfully i should have because it was like this whole long circle to get back to me which is a meandering kind of person who ended up living in costa rica and germany and spent a semester in Australia and I love to travel and I love to be overseas. So I basically like took a time out. But in answer to your question, I, I did not love Michigan. I left um, and my my professor senior year, which interesting in a, in a way, very, very different than Doc Hussey, but a, a, a very significant human and, a, you, you know, someone who's left a very big impact on University of Michigan was the playwriting teacher Ayamo. And so Ayamo and I kept in touch and we were just BSing one day. I was living in Chicago 
And he was telling me, man, I'm having a really hard time finding someone for our playwriting program. And I was like, why didn't you ask me? And, <laughs> and he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, it was like, it was a free ride. It was a full scholarship and a stipend. And so you just got to write, like basically you got paid to write. And so that's kind of how I ended up back there. Had you already started writing prior to your uh, master's program? Yeah, I, I, you know, the way I met Oyamo is that, you know, I don't think people much do it anymore. Like I was very much like, you know, I started writing poetry and then I wrote short stories, you know, and there was like this progression to plays. And now I think people are so focused on film that it's much more normal to start there. But um, I actually just on my own wrote a play called uh, uh, Roomies. And then I don't even remember how it got into the hands of Ayamo and he ended up inviting me into his playwriting for development program senior year of undergrad. And, and so that's how I developed that relationship. And that play won a Hopwood award, which is like a, you know, a prestigious award, award on campus. And, and then I won a second one when I went back as um, for my master's program. Since you bring up your, your playwriting, uh, maybe now's a good time to um, give a little excerpt. I have your. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. For your Did sake. I read a different version of this? Because there were so when I read it, just uh, just to you know refresh my memory, there were some things that jumped out at me that I'm like, do do I remember this correctly? <laughs> um, well, should I should I read it first and then we'll talk about it? Yeah, yeah. A, so you're such a sport. Just right at the top, and yeah. Did you get that note about where to uh, read through? I think so. Okay. Okay, here goes. So this is an excerpt of um, Hypocrites and Strippers. I recently ran into an old high school acquaintance. To my surprise, this formerly semi-religious Jew revealed he'd converted to Christianity. You know, he said, going home and telling my parents I was a Christian was harder than it would have been to tell them I was gay. This made me pause. Do you really think gay is, is his standard harder than example? I mean, I don't see this going over too well at Christian coalition meetings. Or, as I suspected, had the story been tweaked, especially for me, his current audience. But alas, I don't consider myself gay or bi or feminist even. So unfortunately for me, he was tweaking for the wrong audience. If I had to break down and call myself something, I don't know what it would be. Queer? Not queer like odd, as in that's a queer idea, or queer like fag, as in fucking queer but queer, capital Q-U-E-E-R, as in the identity. And I don't mean sexual identity. Queer, capital Q-U-E-E-R, transcends sexuality into an ostracized realm all into itself. So I was thinking about this conversation with my old high school acquaintance, and it kept gnawing at me. If we were raised Christian, would he have come to the same epiphany in reverse? I've been doing 20 some odd years of Christianity. Let's see how this Jewish thing works. See what I mean? seeking out the role of outcast as opposed to truly embodying queerness. I know it's very competitive of me, but I was damned if I was going to be outqueered by a converted conservative Christian. But here's where my trump card comes in. Defying religion, defying gender, defying sexual preference, orientation, and persuasion. What happens when you go home and say, mom, I'm dating a stripper? <laughs> so, <laughs> I... I didn't anticipate this, but I was actually watching my dad's reaction as you're. <laughs> <laughs> so I really love this part, partly because um, 
I don't know that one of the characters just sounded familiar. Yeah. You're not sure why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, in all seriousness, uh, actually, before I say anything, dad, w- did you read this? Was this one of the pieces you read? Um, no, as a matter of fact, I have a complaint. <laughs> I, I, I went to Kim's, I guess it's her website and tried to read it and I just got an advertisement to buy the book, so I couldn't read it. But um, to get back to the substantive part of the question, okay, uh, I have a little uh, real life vignette. In around 1982 or three, I was in the teacher's room in Grady High School, a tech folk high school where I worked in Brooklyn. And the teachers were talking about I don't know, they kids into marrying out of their religion. Mm. And um, I wasn't all that religious at the time, but I've always been very, very committed to the fact that I am personally responsible for the survival of Judaism in the Western world, which is something that I was hammering into my head every day I was alive at home as a kid. And I said... Well, I would have less trouble dealing with my kid if he came home and announced he was gay than if he announced he was a Christian. You never told me that. <laughs> well, I didn't want you to have either alternative. <laughs> you, you, you never said in fact, in fact, I used that analogy in telling the story in front of you before. And you said, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. You know, because I was using a number of different possibilities. I could have come home and said I was Buddhist. I could have come home and said I was gay. I could have come home. Now, what's interesting in Kim's play is that. Actually, let me ask you that. So when folks see characters that they identify with in your work, sometimes there there is a closer there's there's a closer inspiration but uh, but is it a mistake to say oh well my character in the play if someone's appreciating my work i don't find it a mistake for anything i, I have a i have a very i have a very dear friend who um whenever he goes to a reading of mine or a performance, he'll always be like, um, so what did you think? Like, like, like he, he wants to know if people got it, you know, especially mm. if there's a talk back and, and he has a very hard time believing me when I say, I don't feel that way. You, you know, like obviously if someone, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty political human and, and I am interested in, in civil rights and human rights and, and all of that. And so if someone went to when I plays, I got a completely opposite message of that, that would maybe disturb me. But I don't, I don't know that people have to um, get a certain thing. And I think it's actually quite beautiful when, when it's layered. I mean, that, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. Um, hypocrites and strippers is interesting. And, and I guess it's not even true of hypocrites and strippers, but I think as a writer and especially now, because when you're trying to sell your work, people want to know your business so much. And I think social media has done this a lot. Like, like people, everything's equated with you. So when people, you know, talk about my work as if it's synonymous with me, I'll, I'll bring up like, well, I wrote a play about a serial killer, but I've never killed anybody or, or, you know, um, or even like your, your piece America. I don't know if you're a trained dancer or musician or composer, but you are somehow able to, um, collaborate with musicians and dancers to create this really expressive piece. 
So even in different forms that you're using, um, yeah, yeah. I, well, for for America, for me, it's more like different identities, right? Like in in the very first draft of America was a ten minute play, and um, one of my advisors introduced me to this other guy. And I think he was meaning well, but I think it was a little bit racial because he's like, you know, like he introduced me to someone black. And America, as you know, is a play play about stereotyping in the U.S. And anyway, the um, this black guidance counselor was talking to me, and, and he loved the play, and he kept asking me. He was like, "What are you?" And and I didn't like I was <laughs> I was not getting the question, and finally I understood that he was asking what my race is, and he oh. had a very hard time believing I wasn't black and could um, relay feelings that I guess related to him so well. Because oh. one of the characters is called Black Man in the play. And that was very touching to me. You know, on one level, it, it's like a little bit, it could be considered like weird or uncomfortable because he's like delving into my personal life. But he was also, he was also being touched and wanting to find a way to connect with me on a personal level because of something I wrote. On the flip side, my thesis play for my MFA, I went out to dinner with someone on a business thing afterwards, and he said to me, you're not very funny. And I was like, excuse me? He's like, your play is really funny, but you're not very funny. And, uh, and I was just like, well, okay then. And it reminded me of like my comedian friends, you know, because people are like constantly coming up to you and being like, tell me a joke. And it's like, well that's performance. And this is just me as a human being interacting with you. But I, I think it's always a compliment when someone sees themselves in your work or, or can pull something meaningful out of your work. But in, in terms of answering your correction, your question more directly, um, I was a PA when I wrote Hypocrites and Strippers. And when we ran into each other, I was actually writing excerpts of this play. So, mm. so you and I ran into each other at, um, the Emmy Awards or something like that. We were, I was, I was, I was making a delivery and we ran into each other. Right. That's, that's, that's how we reconnected. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. I re, at the Panasonic building. I was waiting outside of an office. Yeah. Yeah. I remember now. Yeah. That was so cool to run into you, by the way. Yeah. Um, it was like completely random and weird. Totally random. Like we, it was that double take like Kim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I will say this, that let me say it this way. I had a teacher um, that used to, she was teaching us on Whitman. And at first I kind of resisted it because he wasn't my cup of tea, but she, she kind of chuckled. She's like, well, you don't like him because you don't know him. You, know? <laughs> you don't know poetry. So just go through the process. It's kind of like beer. you like, try it a couple of times. If you don't <laughs> like it uh, after a couple of, you know, after a week or so, you'll like it. If you still don't like it after a couple of weeks, you're, wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, but she described Whitman and, and good poets as seers. There's something mm. about your work and then, you know, there's poetry in this and hypocrites and strippers that you're seers. And, and that's, it was very stark to me when I read that portion of it, because I thought, wow, she really nailed it. You know, she really, as the writer, you were picking up on something in me um, if if I was indeed the inspiration uh, in any way for that character, that there was an insecurity there that I wanted to um, it, I wasn't it wasn't like I was lying in a way, but I did want to tailor my story in a way uh, to 
for your approval in a way. Like I, mm. I wanted to, um, whether it was more innocent that I wanted to relate to you um, or I was tailoring the story for, for the audience, like you said, but there was, it came from a place of, of insecurity and wanting that approval. But to put that, I think a good writer would put that um, in a three-dimensional character that it wasn't judgmental. It was just a reflection, you know, an articulate reflection of, of a character like that. So anyway, that, I don't know if you want to respond to that, but I, I just wanted to give you, it was, it was, there was so much in your writing that was encapsulated right there. Um, because I, obviously I read so much else of your work, but I, I just thought I'd give you that feedback and how it, how it struck me. Well, thank you. And also there, it also speaks to the beauty of you because you didn't read that and get angry. with me. And I also do want to clarify that like this character isn't necessarily me. You just opened a door. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, right. Like it was kind of very interesting because the play didn't open this play in particular poured out of me. Like there's an earlier version I even wrote, like I was like Eminem and, and I, 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 I can't even remember actually if that's still in there, but, but like I was, I was literally being a PA and stopping and right, pulling out pieces of paper and stuffing things into my pocket. And I didn't know well, what does PA mean? A production assistant. Sorry about that. Ah. Um, so I'd be running around working crazy long days with not a free second. And I would just be pulling out scraps of paper to write down bits of this. Yeah. And, and, and in the midst of all of that, I ran into you. And I also should point out, since we're only reading an excerpt of this, that the speaker, because this is a one-person show, she, she hip, she's part of the hypocrites, you know, portion of it. So, so, so her her point of view gets laid out as well. Yeah, and you name her uh, at different parts, like poser Jill or something like that. Or that's right. Yeah, yeah. and 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 the, and the reason she's a poser is because of that. And it's really, it's actually really quite beautiful that you articulated in the way that you did, because that's exactly what, what Jill's doing throughout the play, right? Like she's taking on a persona for, for when she feels like she's going to be bold and whatever. And then she's lying to herself. And as the play continues, they, they, they overlap. The animated, I, I only saw the trailer for the animated or, or maybe yeah. it was the first chapter for the there, animated. There are, there are two of them. Yeah. I, I still have a desire to make more of them, but it hasn't happened yet. It's fun stuff. I got I got to tell you, you know, hearing this, um, hearing this this little vignette it's so true to life um when you meet people in a social environment people try to connect with each other and the way they do that typically is to find commonality you know so that there's an artificial connection immediately and the commonality is usually expressed with some kind of label either implicit or explicit um i had an well, you know this this experience at, at, at your first church, Corey. Corey's first church in California was a very conservative Baptist megachurch in, in the valley here. And I used to go pick up uh, my grandkids when they were at church at different activities. And it was very common for people in the church to approach me and say, oh, you're Corey's father. Um, you know, I had a Jewish grandparent. <laughs> it was kind of like being in Arizona where everybody is related to a Native American. You know, in Southern California, every conservative Christian has a Jew in their background for some reason. <laughs> and as they were trying to make this connection with me, one of them says, by the way, are you a completed Jew? 
had no idea what they were talking about. And it suddenly dawned on me what they were talking about, that my son was complete and I wasn't because he had accepted Jesus. So I looked at this woman and I said, well, I have two arms and two legs. I certainly feel complete. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question based on something your dad just said. Do you consider yourself a conservative Christian? Gosh, I I askew labels like that um, because of the baggage that they take on. So if we're talking about, I I think it would be fair to say that my theological convictions would be considered by most to be pretty conservative, Mm -hmm. but that's theological. Uh, I think the political positions that I've arrived at because of how I read scripture, for example, Many others would also say that some of them are pretty conservative. Um, but but I think that, again, that begins to oversimplify the equation, you know, for, just to just to mess it up a little bit. For example, um, if a lot of my friends from church who are very accurately labeled politically conservative, even as we would define it today on this very day, January 7th, 2021, um, if they understood my views on immigration, for example, are based that that are based and firmly rooted in the the um, conclusions I arrived at because I believe in the authority of Scripture. They would think that I'm a downright commie. Uh, like, but it's it's interesting to me because I would I would not call you a conservative Christian. So I was wondering if when you hear your dad say that, if it hits you at all. Or if it just because it, it struck me like when when he said that, um, at, well, and then my follow up question is because I am completely religious. When you say you're conservative when it comes to the scripture, does that mean you're taking it by the word, or what is what does that mean? So I take again, it, it's a it's a packed question because you know my father and I've been talking about well, do you believe the Bible literally? I just don't think that's a sufficient question because mm-hmm. every you know, of all the books that or letters that make up what we know as the Bible, each one you have to, if you're, I take it on its own terms. So when we're talking about the Psalms, they're beautiful, they're poetry or Proverbs, it's wisdom literature. When we're talking about um, Kings and Chronicles, those we, we think of as history, but they were written at a different time for a different audience. So even some agenda, by the way, right. So even and they weren't written the same way that someone at Oxford or Harvard or, or UCLA is writing history now. Mm-hmm. History wasn't done the same way with the same right. tools that we have now. So I'm not reading it on the same terms that I would read somebody's account of, of um, you know, if I'm reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's account, a comparison of, of, of Lincoln, LBJ, FDR and Teddy Roosevelt. That's different history. Um, not to say that those events didn't happen, but I just have to put on a different set of glasses and and try to the best of my ability to read contextually who was who at what time was it being right written for which, what audience was it being written um, at what point in history was it being written? How was this kind of literature um, written at that time? So I, I tried I do try to take the Bible on its own terms um, and and just to the best of my ability, just like wrestle with it. 
Well, I, I, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me in terms of theater, because um, there's this conversation about universi universality, right? And, and I think things get universal by being very specific, largely. I mean, I, I imagine there are exceptions. And part of this question of like, does the play stand of test the time? And that means that only certain plays can then become part of the canon, right? Right? Like even Angels in America, which I think now has been accepted as like part of part of the canon, it doesn't play so well anymore without the context. And and what and something that was really interesting to me is that Wendy Wasserstein, who's someone who really resonated with me, like they did a revival of the Heidi Chronicles, and it and it just it did they closed early, you, mm. you know. And then Hillary Clinton, you know, lost the election or, you know, lost the electoral college. And I think had they done that revival the, the, that year or the year later, the play would have done much better because all of a sudden people would have believed that it's still relevant. Right. The Bible, I mean, Genesis, for example, it, you know, does survive, not because it's historically accurate, because it's a truth test, it text in a much deeper sense. Well, what, what do you mean by that, Pop? We never tire of the story of Adam and Eve. It's such a essential, central experience of human development to move from innocence to wisdom. And that's what the story is really all about in my opinion. So did it happen? I really don't care. And I'm an Orthodox Jew. I mean, I take this stuff very seriously. Um, I think, you know, Moses really did go up on the mountain and get something from, from God. But like you said, I mean, the reason it survives is because it's truer than history. I, I don't I, I, I don't know. I, I'll for one say I am exhausted about that story. So I don't I don't I think a lot of us don't feel I, I'm tired of Adam and Eve. I have no interest in Adam and Eve. Um, but I think the conversation about truth is an interesting one. And, and especially like if we go back to hypocrites and strippers, like the play isn't true. You know, like maybe there are things that are in it that really happen. Like I ran into Corey, but that character in the play isn't exactly me. And the, the 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 steps in that play aren't exactly factual, but but the play speaks of truth, and 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 I think maybe we can agree on that. Like for you, there's a truth in the Adam and Eve story, and I think in a lot of great literature, there's there's some essence there that that weighs on. And and my only point about bringing up like the Heidi Chronicles and other especially women playwrights who have been swept aside is that sometimes it needs to be explained. And, mm. and so, um, you know, part of the chore is how to, how to explain the weight of this, you, you know, like Eugene O'Neill was not the most famous playwright in his time. There were female playwrights in the Provincetown players that were much more significant than him. And we have to realize there was an agenda that made his work survive, not just this pretense at, oh, well, the work is so universal, so it lives on. I wasn't aware of that. What, what are you referring to? I'm forgetting her name. And, and it's sort of true, like, it's true throughout time that, you know, women playwrights just got thrown under the rug. Yeah. Well, Dorothy Sayers has come up on the podcast a couple of times. You know, she should have been 
one of the inklings. You know, she should have been celebrated along with Tolkien and 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 C.S. Lewis. But um, yeah, I perhaps no, actually no, not perhaps because she was a woman, she wasn't welcome at that table. Susan Gladspell. Mm. Okay. Susan Glassbell, G-L-A-S-P-E-L-L. But it's just the question of of that moment and how history is told, right? You know, I I think that's just part of creating history is acknowledging that someone's creating history. You you know, know, like there isn't a history. Yeah. There's someone massaging it. Well, history is a lot like fiction. I mean, if you would describe the Battle of Waterloo, Literally, it was like thousands of men fighting with each other. But when you write history, you ignore all that and you talk about other stuff and that becomes history. You know, I had an epiphany this morning. I'm reading this book. I'm so sorry to hear that. I feel now. (laughs) No, it's, you know, I I worked it out. (laughs) I I had an epiphany once, but I went to the doctor for it. How do you expect me to go on? I have good medical coverage. (laughs) So I'm reading this book. Um, It's about, it's just about the mind and how the mind works. And famous story, a lot of people hear about it. The three blind men that are touching the elephant. One is touching the body and he thinks, he describes it as a wall. And the other touching the tail and describes it must be a rope. The other just touching the trunk and says it must be a snake, you know, and usually the story ends there to make the point that you could be all touching the same elephant, blind people, um, and they're absolutely convinced that they're descri- they're right and they're describing accurately what this is, mm-hmm. and 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 they're all wrong. Well, you know, it occurred to me that they're all within; they could reach out and touch each other. They all hear each other's voice, you know if they all described what they're experiencing, they get a, and, and listen to each other mm. collectively, they would get a better picture of the elephant as opposed to saying, I'm right. And whatever you have to say is invalid. No, mm. I'm right. And this is my experience. And I also understand that it's a limited experience, mm. you know, so get those three blind people. Uh, it's usually described as three blind men, which maybe is relevant now. That I think. Um <laughs> But, you know, why don't we just listen to each other's experiences because there's validity in all of them and we'll get a better sense of the picture. That yeah. was my epiphany this morning. And it's, and it's taken you 50 years to figure that out, Corey. Stop, come on. It was just an analogy. <laughs> um, so you're a very prolific writer. Uh, I, I, you know, just this week alone, I, I've been enjoying yesterday. I was listening to the recording of um, and I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but King King Shumiwami and the Volcano of Mad. <laughs> you, you nailed it, Corey. You're like an actor or something. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's very different than like the articles and the op-eds that I was reading, the the open letters uh, to. Yeah. You know. Well, King Shumiwami is kind of a love story to my brother and my mom. Um, and and it resurfaced now because my partner and I, when COVID started, wanted to, because like you said, my, my work is edgy, you know, it's edgy, it's in your face, it's challenging. Like I generally like to joke that I, I make you laugh till I stick the knife in. Um, and we just sort of, especially for parents and particular moms, like, like what moms, the, the, the ramifications of COVID on women in the workplace are so profound. Um, you know, like, I think they said the equality in the workplace is back to like the 1980s as the result of COVID. 
And so we were just sort of trying to put something soothing into the world. And so we, um, we started recording excerpts of it and Ash just started texting the link to friends, you know, and then we, we put it up, but never really publicized it. And I think what we're going to do is make it into an audio book. And it, it's just a very sweet story about a, a boy dealing with his anger. Mm-hmm. And um, I sort of refer to it as like Dr. Seuss. It's, it's a little bit Dr. Seuss and a little bit um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I haven't gotten to the end yet, but is, is there, you know, it's clear from chapter one or the first part that the mother how she interacts in particular with the boy, mm-hmm. you see where his, you see where his anger is coming from. Not, not, right. not where his anger is coming from, but she's, she's displaying anger. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense that he would display anger as well. Mm-hmm. We, we, I, I don't, he, he, I don't know how far in you are, but, but King Shumawama is in a fantasy world. So he, yeah. he, he goes, he goes into this fantasy world and then King Shumawama sort of teaches him how to deal with anger. Okay. And, and we've joked in the house about, you, you know, I can't tell you how many, I'm sure you've heard it as well. How, how many times I've heard that's not fair. So <laughs> we, we, we joked about making a second one, um, like maybe just calling this series Shumiwa. And the first episode would be King Shumiwa and the Fountain of Fair. And I'm sorry, King Shumiwa and the Volcano of Mad. And the second one would be uh, King Shumiwa and the Fountain of Fair. And then maybe there would be a third one, which would be a real twist because the second one would be the sisters centered, be, would be centered in the story. And the third one, the mom would be, which is kind of unusual because everything is usually from the kid's point of view. So mm-hmm. e- each of them would have a chance to go to Shumiwa and then have their own story. So the sisters would be the fountain of fair because she's always screaming, that's not fair. Yeah. She's the younger sister and Russ gets everything first. Um, yeah. I haven't yet figured out what mom's story would be. But but yeah, it, it came from a place of... Um, of intentionally wanting to not rile people up, but yet still sort of be hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking uh, that's not fair. I was hearing that in the voices of grown ass adults yesterday as, <laughs> you know, they were, you know, saying, Oh, well, where was your outrage when mm. black lives matter and, and, mm-hmm. and Antifa and um, like, okay. My, my, my four and a half year old had reactions similar to that. Um, and as a parent, you try to gently, patiently guide them up in the way they should go. By the time they were five, the that's not fair type of, <laughs> and yeah, you have bigger words for it now. You call it hypocrite or whatever. Um, now, it, you should have been over that by the time you were about five. So uh, I have a really bad taste. Anyway, I'm not, uh, that's a non sequitur. Your dad, you read some of the, um, some of the articles, some of the op-eds that Kim wrote, right? I did. Yeah. You you know what you know what struck me about one of them is you seem to hold some of your harshest criticism for the Obama administration. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure which article. I'm assuming I'm speaking about the same article. But my cousin is married to someone who I think he's certainly he's a money guy. You know, he's he's a multimillionaire, and um, like all of his his passion in the world is money and baseball. And um, and when he read that article, which I didn't even send him, I think I think he might have seen it on Facebook or I don't know how he got to it. He wrote back, this is great. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, I just I just I just wrote something that conservatives are like loving. Um, but I believe in truth. And I think that 
um, there's a lot of things I wish he would have done differently. And, and I, and I knew that as I was campaigning for him, I, I don't, you know, the reality of it is, is that Obama's not a hypocrite or a liar. People misconstrued him. They thought he was some uh, progressive prince and, and he's a centrist and, and he, he governed like a centrist um, and should be critiqued the same way I would like, I, I, don't, I don't, I think there's a very big party in this, speaking of faith, in this in this religion about party do, do you know like i i think it matters how you behave and and if obama's locking up you know children or or immigrants i need to call it out the same way i would when any republican administration is doing it um, or any other policy that i'm not in favor of that's fair i i agree with what you just said um the article that i read that you wrote that really touched me are related to uh, back in 2016, the most common conversation I had with people politically was, are you gonna sit out this election or vote for a third mm-hmm. party candidate because neither one is a perfect candidate. They're both corrupt people. Just one is much more corrupt than the other. And my position was, you got to I would vote for Daffy Duck over Donald Trump. Mm. The guy is scum, you know, and I don't care what any particular policy is, even policies that I agree with. You reach a certain point we say this guy's a piece of shit and it doesn't matter what he says he believes in. I've got to vote for somebody else to keep him out of the White House. I just have to, as opposed to. The other side of the coin, I'm not going to give my vote away anymore. I will never do that again. At this point, after yesterday. Wait, wait, be specific about giving your vote. Do you mean by voting for a third party? Yeah, yeah, voting for a third party candidate. Mm. We're not voting at all. After yesterday, this is something I'm going to struggle with probably for the rest of my life. Because politicians generally have to be corrupt to be successful. I'm not. You can't be a nationally successful politician uh, any place without being corrupt. Ah, Gosh, I I just I know you think that, but that's another conversation. But I I don't I'm not Uh, that cynical. You know, maybe you can find two people in the history of humanity who became politically successful and weren't corrupt. But um, I can't. I think I, I think what we're I, I mean, I'm, I'm not I know you were saying it was non sequitur, Corey. I'm not sure, entirely sure where you were going when you were talking about then that's not fair with Black Lives Matters. Um, but um, I don't think it's a, that's not fair. I think it's a pulling back for certain people like like there are certain people like myself who were not standing for the national anthem well before Capri- uh, Colin, Colin took a knee. Yeah. And, um, uh, that there, we, didn't, we didn't need Donald Trump to get elected to know something was wrong in this country. And so for a lot of people, yesterday just made it very blatant for a lot of people who have not been wanting to accept what's in our faces. Well, let, let me be specific because I, I didn't tease that point out since you brought it up again. So yesterday, um, any number of us were online trying to engage with our circles to try to make sense of what was going on. You know, most people with a heart and a brain and a conscience 
understood that what was happening at the Capitol was wrong on a very fundamental level. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, it's a, it's a, something has been breached, right? But very quickly, um, right around the time that certain pundits got on their radio shows um, and figured out what their talking points were, we started hearing those same talking points parroted. Um, For example, where was your outrage when they were burning down Portland? Mm-hmm. Where was your outrage when Antifa was this and BLM is that? And where was your outrage? You're all a bunch of hypocrites. If you, well, I didn't hear you over the summer when blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so, so making that equivalency, first of all, is just like, why, why are we talking about this now? Like the, the Capitol is literally burning right now. You know, there's a, there, there are dead people in our nation's capital right now, you know, like, so, so that's number one, but the point in bringing something like that up is to try to point out the hypocrisy that, Oh, you're so upset right now. And the mainstream media is going to act like a bunch of drama Queens because they, this is there that feeds into their, whatever, you know, to, to me, that's like, that only serves to, that only serves as fuel for this simmering warlike atmosphere between either us, as someone like that would define it, and them. And, and, and yesterday, the us and the them were defined as the quote unquote good patriots who believed that the election was stolen and it was all a fraud and everyone else mm-hmm. and everyone else who, who, who said, you know what? I don't know. Everyone else, by the way, includes those who voted for Trump. Of the 74 million people who, who voted for Trump, I don't think all 74 million think that there was fraud. In fact, let's say it was 50, 60 percent of them said, said yes to that poll question. Yeah, there was fraud. I, my guess is that, so let's say there's 35 million of them who said that there was some fraud. Of those 35 million people, most of them, as David French has said, Uh, and broken it down. Most of those people were like, yeah, I think some fraud happened. Now, what's the score in the game? Did you hear that Francisco Lindor just got traded to the Mets? You know, like they might have said yes to that poll question, but I think a majority of the people who said yes. So that that leaves a certain number of people who, by the way, have a really loud voice in our culture right now. I, I, I went on to our representative is Mike Garcia. He just got voted in by a very, very slim margin over Christy Smith, California 25. Um, First of all, I wanted to see if he was okay. Second of all, I wanted to see if he was going to vote in favor of the opposition in the votes yesterday or not. And then all of a sudden, which way he was voting, I couldn't judge him for it because I started reading the comments section under a post that he made. And the post was um, the violence, something along the lines of the violence that is happening right now is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he said it more articulately and was a little bit more detailed than that. But basically, the violence is wrong. Well, there were literally, by the time I checked in, at least 200 comments on that post. Um, Same thing on Twitter. And it was all, well, what did you expect would happen? You know, it's your fault. Blood is on your hands. So there's certain comments along those lines. Other comments were, well, we're not just going to stand by and let it let let this fraud happen. You know, those are all the comments, Mm. you know, but I think. My point about bringing up the 74 million people and half of them said there was some fraud. And but most of the people who even say it's fraud aren't really like it's not an obsession or they don't think there was complete 
it overturned the election. My point of that is that the small percentage of the population, the 330 million people who make up America, the small percentage who are like, it was fraud and they stole the election. I think there's such a small percentage of the population, but they're dominating the conversation. Nobody, a guy like me, I don't want to leave a comment on there. Why? Because I don't want guys threatening my family. I don't want people who, 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 the only reason that they weren't burning down the Capitol yesterday is because they could, they didn't want to get on a plane and and go to DC, but they're taking over the conversation and that's Mm -hmm. not right. You know, and, and I I can't, even if, I strongly, strongly disagree. If Mike ended up, Garcia ended up voting for for to oppose um, as a symbolic vote of, of opposition, I strongly, strongly disagree with that yesterday. But I can't necessarily judge him for that. If he, especially if he knew that it was going nowhere, and if that's all he needed to do to like put out a little bit of fire, um, I still don't agree with it, but I can't completely judge him for it. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just. I think we can't completely judge them for it, and we have to. I mean, my, I I have a senator who he walked it back, but I think what I think I think at the point, you know. Yeah, Danes. Danes walked it back. It's it's very it's very very complicated. Um, our our House of Representative did not walk it back. He doubled down even mm. after. Um, and uh, I I I I think the word sedition and and revolution exist for a reason and when someone tells you who they are that you have to believe them yeah and and yeah. um and the, the to me we could not have pre- predicted covid but we knew something was going to happen in 4 years of a presidency because it always does and to me trump's is the most predictable presidency in the history of the country the, the, I, I think yeah i think that's there's, fair there's, i mean we knew he told us who he was beforehand um, and 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 people ignored it. People got wealthier and wealthier and did not care. People got more and more powerful and did not care. And um, it hurts, you know, it hurts to watch, you know, like my mom was my mom's a huge patriot. We butt heads on certain things. And I felt for her yesterday, you, you know, as her heart broke. I mean, obviously, like you said, it was a very 9-11 moment. And so my heart broke too, but in a different way because her facade has gotten broken in the past four years, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, mine was not. Um, just to add some more depressing insights, as a high school guidance counselor, I learned very quickly, once a taboo was broken, it was gone. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, the best example is that I remember very um, vividly, there was a story in, um, in New York City in the early 80s about a homeless man who was set on fire. Mm. And people went, I mean, it was horrible, you know, horrifying. Adolescents pouring gasoline on a homeless person setting him on fire. Within three months, there were four more instances like that. Um, And it's not just copycats. There were behaviors that I hadn't ever heard of in guidance counselor school, cutting. Cutting meant skipping class when I started work. By the time I left, it meant cutting your arms to see it bleed. And all of a sudden, 20% of my girl clients were anorexic. You know, 30% were cutting. This attack on the Capitol, 
it's going to happen again. Trump has normalized behaviors in the presidency, in the public square, and in our politics that once upon a time, just four years ago, were taboo, and now are normalized. So, so I think we're in for a really rough ride. Just let me add one more thing. The things that we're going to do to protect the Capitol aren't going to be great things. They're going to be very undemocratic, coercive things. I do think there's reason to be concerned. And I think we should give credence to that concern. And, you know, I hope that there's serious conversation about what to do so that we don't find ourselves here again. I really hope that there are other voices that we began to hear very early in the morning, late, late, late last night and early into the morning, like Mitt Romney and Ben Sass, for example, whether you agree with their politics or not, those are the voices that might be in the best position to build some sort of a bulwark against Trumpism, right? There was, there was a story that I was remembering this morning. It comes in Acts, the book of Acts. Sorry to bring up the Bible again, but it, it's um, just from a literary standpoint, it's, it's relevant. Well, Acts is relevant to Kim, right? Huh? Oh, stop. No. Um, so early in the book of Acts, there's this encounter where uh, it's after Jesus dies. And um, I think it was two of his closest disciples were brought before uh, the Sanhedrin, the you know official council in Israel. Um, and the Sanhedrin was trying to figure out what to do with this little band of um, Jesus followers. And, 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 what, and what did Gamaliel say? That's why I brought it up. So what did God do? You, do you remember Dad? Of course. Right. So you want to say? No. Okay. So he said... <laughs> It's come on. Um, <laughs> That's my job, Corey. <clears throat> so Gamaliel said to the, the, the other guys went out um, and he said to the other people on the uh, Sanhedrin, on the, you know, official leadership council, he we said, have Listen, to tell the, we have to tell, we have to tell the listeners who Gamaliel was. Gamaliel was the head of the Pharisees. Right. He was Rabbi Hillel's grandson. Yeah. Yeah. He was Pharisees. a big deal. He was a big deal. Not just a big deal, but he was a Pharisee. And the reason I keep saying that is because the Pharisees were the good guys. You okay. Christians got it wrong. Of course. Right. But that's another podcast. We're not talking about that right now. <laughs> I bring it up for a reason. He was in a position of authority and he was well respected by the other people um, who had positions of authority. And he said to them, here's the deal. If this Jesus character. OK, we, we've seen this before. We've seen this play out before. And so many different um, movements have have gone away, have 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 disintegrated. You know, they, they they've um, you, you know, you, you cut off the leader. I mean, what, uh, what, what he said was, if, if this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah, we'll know it. And if, you know, we'll know it. And if he's not, we'll know it. Yeah, we'll know it. We don't have to do anything about this. He cited a couple other movements that 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 went the way of the, you know, uh, of the Babylonians, of the uh, ancient Egyptians, of the Persians. You know, he didn't use those terms, but listen, Donald Trump is a false prophet if we've ever seen one in our time. So, you know, at, at some point, he's going to be less relevant 
than what the office of president of the United States um, lends him right now. Yeah, but I also think like we're, we're, this is like, um, I, I guess like a few comments back is where my brain still is and moving forward to this moment. But um, for starters, I, I think it isn't true that we necessarily, like, like this idea that things necessarily have to go a certain way. I don't buy into that. That post 9-11 could have been a triumphant moment for the United States and the world. Instead, it was made into a hateful, destructive moment. And, and, and there's that opportunity right now as well. Um, the, the, but I got a text from a friend in Germany this morning, you know, like I'm thinking of you, I'm appalled and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I said to her, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to believe that something good can come of this, though I'm struggling with that. And, and something good come up, can't, like, like, let's be honest, 20 years ago, when George Bush stole the election, the Democrats should have been stronger and questioned the Electoral College. Everybody is so terrified. The Constitution has become Bible-like. Everybody is so terrified of questioning this document. And if, 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 if nothing else has happened between November and now, we've seen how many loopholes there are in our government. There are so many loopholes in our government. The, the, the transition of power should not be reliant on the person currently holding it to say, I concede power. Um, there, there are just so many things. Democracy has evolved greatly since it became more predominant across the world, but the United States has not. And also there's just a conversation that needs to be had about that the, the oppression in the United States is intentional. We, we came into creation based on oppression and exploitation and we're not owning it. And, and how do you get past it when we, we can't even talk about it? Um, like it's like a truth and reconciliation moment needs to happen here. I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you. I think you're identifying something that's hardwired into human DNA. Every society is oppressive and exploitive and denies that it's oppressive and exploitive. That's part of being a human being. I'm, I'm, I, we can have a philosophical conversation about that, but all I know is that my friends in New Zealand and Australia are dying at a lesser rate than the people in the United States are. That, yeah. that, that's just a fact. Yeah, that's just we, a we, empirical. We, we, that's just data. And, and data is more useful to function from, especially in a moment like now, and especially because data is being messed with. And, and people have to take ownership. Uh, when Barack Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, the media started calling it Obamacare. The media is complicit in that. There are people who still do not know that the word Obamacare is the same thing as the Affordable Care Act. You can find people who say, I'm against Ob Obamacare, and then they find out they're actually on it and they yeah. don't know. <laughs> the media is complicit in, in, in making the term fake news ubiquitous. It's called a lie. It's called propaganda. And and and. You know, we can debate all kinds of nuances and philosophical things, but it's a fact that COVID started very far from the United States. It's a fact that Trump completely dissected and, and, and mutilated anything to prevent something like that from coming to the shores of the United States. And it's a fact that when it got here, he decided that, you know what, I'm going to let this run rampant because it's to my benefit. Right. And that's a very, that's a very Holocaust like maneuver. It's so intention. I, I have a few responses to what you're saying. I don't disagree at all with what you're saying about COVID. I think COVID 
was not completely unavoidable, but there were certain things that were so blatantly obvious so early on, as early as January, even to someone as uneducated about the epidemics and pandemics as me, as to say, why, why aren't we doing testing? I remember a friend of mine who runs the local radio station here was one of the people who got sick on the Princess Cruises cruise. Um, and, and that was the first thing. Wait, why aren't we ramping up testing on an, on an institutional national level? Um, you know, but that, that's that again, that's another conversation. But to your point, I, I will get a little philosophical here. I think very early on in the formation of um, the, the, the debates that were happening that led to the Constitution itself, there was that discussion between guys like Hamilton and Madison about for, for you know, I'm going to mess. I'm just going to say they, there was a conversation about, you know, people are assholes, you know, and assholes are ultimately going to get into power somehow. So we have to write a constitution about how to protect against such an instance as when an asshole comes into power, you know, and, and I forget who it was, but Madison might've been, no, people are basically good and him. No, people are assholes. Either way, I'm, I'm butchering the whole story, but basically they accounted for the fact that people with uh, evil intent, um, bad intent are ultimately going to be put in positions of authority. What I didn't think they would account for is someone who is as much of a complete asshole as Donald freaking Trump. But I just want to, I'm sorry, am I interrupting you? No, no, no. Well, I, I do, I do want to okay. say. I do it all the time. I, I do want to say that a couple more things and, and, and then, you know, please. The, I was, I hated the fact that as 60 plus or minus cases had to have been brought before various um, judges and and even a few before the Supreme Court. Um, but I kind of liked the fact that they were because again and again and again, whether it was a Democratic appointed judge or Trump appointed judge, um, even at the Supreme Court level, it turned out that democracy held, you know, that that the the election results were affirmed, that the attorney general, you know, Trump's, you know, favorite lapdog himself said there was not fraud that 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 could turn over this election. So it was affirmed again and again and again. And there were the, the guys that I was most critical of prior to the election, um, I was really kind of getting to be a geek about state by state. I was such a crit, such a cr critic of the governor Kemp and um, uh, Raffensperger in Georgia, the attorney general. I was really cynical. I thought even if if Biden actually won by two and a half points, he'd still lose. Even those people affirmed the actual results of the election. So in that regard, I don't want to forget about that because that that's a point of of there. There's a reason to be hopeful in in those affirmations of democracy. One other point that I want to make, and it's more on a personal note. There's very little I can do on a national level. You know, I, I can be scared and horrified and cynical to the days long about all of the awful things that are happening. Um, but I, I do want to share one really quick story um, that, and, and I think this is where the seeds of hopefulness and healing can come in. I had an experience with somebody who I was, I considered a good friend. We did charity work together, what we call ministry work together. We were in Bible studies together. We were in each other's homes. We were helping raise each other's kids. And I had an incident with him a couple of weeks ago where he, I thought he said something that was sort of inane on, on Facebook. And I replied to him, 
you know, I was mostly agreeing with his sentiment, but disagreeing with an aspect of what he said. And within an instant, he blocked me. And it was really upsetting. Like, so all those years that we were in each other's lives and he's in each other's family's lives, all of that is out the window. And, and all it took was the pressing of a button. Well, I, I bring this up because I didn't, it bothered me enough to pursue him. Um, and I did it in various ways and he kept on ignoring me and ignoring me. And I was, I, I felt like, Oh, maybe I'm the troll now, but it wasn't so much to make my point or to prove that I was right in whatever it was that I was saying, because let's face it, at the end of the day, my point might've been right. It might've been wrong, but he saw me as coming across as kind of an asshole about it. So that's, and it, I probably was. Um, but what was more important to me was that break in the relationship because we disagree on a certain thing or I was being an asshole or not. I, I don't know. Well, I'm going to visit him today. We had this really, <laughs> I, he finally got back to me. Um, and, you know, as soon as we talked directly, I just, I, I, he was clearly really upset. What I didn't know is that he has um, health complications. Uh, I don't want to share too much about it, but um, once I broke through and he responded to me, I could only be accountable for how I handled that situation wrong in the first place. Um, again, I might've been right in whatever point I was making, but clearly I did something to upset him, to offend him. And all I could do was account for that and say, listen, man, I, I'm sorry. You know, I, I really, I just, I miss you. You know, whether we talk about that thing or not, I don't care, but I do care that we were broke. We were broke. Our relationship was broken off. I'm going to hang out with him today. I think that's something to be cherished. I think that's something to be celebrated that, yeah, we, we can get into these arguments, but on a personal level, if we don't give up on each other there, we can find a little bit of redemption, a little bit of reason to repair the wrongs. Sure. But, but when we're not, but, and when you start talking about, well, I don't blame my representative for doing what he's doing because I read this thread and I'm scared for him, or I would be scared to add to it. There's something very wrong. Well, because that, I want to be specific there. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to be specific. It's not that I don't blame him. It's that I can't necessarily judge him. That's. But, but then we have a very big problem, right? And, and obviously social media is a huge problem. You know, like we could have an hours long conversation about the fact that uh, two weeks before the end of his uh, term and president Twitter's blocking him, you know, <laughs> which all comes down to money. Um, but I, I just, I just sort of, you and your dad have both talked about stuff not being changeable and um, trust me, I'm very jaded and I'm extremely angry and I'm also a huge target right now. Um, like I, I was joking about it in, in Montana, like trans folks seem to be the target at the moment. So maybe the homos will be second in line. <laughs> um, uh, Anti-Semitism, like I, I, I joked about this a lot, especially when I was living in Germany, because uh, for a long time, I, I said I wasn't Jewish and I'm pretty much not Jewish, but people, people more than any other religion, you can't stop being Jewish. People will find a reason to lock me up for being Jewish. So whatever, I'm also female. And that's a whole nother conversation about women being like one of the only groups on the planet now are uniformly oppressed, but you can't really talk about being oppressed as a woman, or it's not so much even on the table. 
Um, but but these are the this is the work, right? So with, within, I I can't reach your community, Corey. That there, I'm, I'm I'm not even welcome in the door. And so if we don't push, if if we elect people who do the weak thing because they want to get reelected, or if in our communities we don't speak up because we're afraid of being ostracized, then what do we have? Um, and also because Corey, you have that door, you know, some of my very interesting memories in LA, when we like ate together after your show with a group of your friends, or you brought me, um, I, I think it was actually, I don't know if it was the church, but it was to an activity. Yeah, it was on, it was at the, um, it was at, it, we had a little stage on campus there. Yeah. And, and so, you know, a lot of the times I'm not prepared for that, but when I, when I know what I'm walking into, you, you know, and, and it's the burden of being a marginalized group is that, you know, kind of what you were saying, Ronnie, people coming up to you and you, you have to bear the brunt of this, but it's also the work. And, and we all decide which work is our work and when and where and how we want to do it. I, I will extend an invitation to you that I'm happy to, to do whatever bridge building with communities that we can do. I, I felt I felt it was meaningful when um, yeah, I very, very really strongly remember because we were all sitting together and your friends didn't know I was a big fag. And, um, <laughs> and the conversation turned some way. And, and of course I have no knowledge of any Bible or scripture or anything. And, um, but I do know the 10 commandments. And so I recall saying to them, well, why is one commandment you know, more important or, or than the other. And they were like, of course they're not. And I said, really? So do you ostracize someone from your community for cheating on their husband or wife? Does that get treated the same as someone being gay? And like the whole conversation just stopped, but I felt it register. Did you know what I mean? Like I didn't feel anger coming. And, and also it was two things. One, like if I was in a regular conversation and that came up, it might've hit me in a way where I was, my hairs would stand up and I'd be more in an aggressive stance. But I knew that I was in a community that believes a lot of things different than me, even though we have this love of theater. And that's also a nice thing because we connected as theater lovers. And then it made, it made space in a calm way for me not to get my claws out when this thing was said. And then also for me to come back and present an idea that did not get other people's cause out. I think it really actually made them stop for a minute and go, okay, you know, let me think on that. I don't know if they change their minds or makes them vote differently or walk down the street differently, but I, I have a hard time believing uh, it doesn't weigh on you when you meet someone from a different country, a different religion, a different viewpoint, and, and, and you like them, and then you learn this other aspect I think it lands differently. And I think it's very useful. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I, I believe in hope, but I also believe in being realistic. Um, there's a guy I read a few years ago, Jonathan Haidt, who does, um, he, he's a behavioral psycho psychologist who examines how morality developed. And essentially, I mean, being tribal, which is something we've been talking about for the last five, six, seven years, that's hardwired into human DNA. Um, our morality is basically developed 
to treat people within our tribe in an altruistic way, and but not to treat people outside of our tribe in an altruistic way. That that's a human characteristic, which isn't to say that that's that would would damned forever into that box, because as human beings, right? First, we have to recognize it before we can do something about it. We can transcend it, but it's something we have to acknowledge. First of all, I just want to say, I don't believe in hope. Um, I, I, I believe in doing and planning and taking action. I, I mean, it's nice to have a, hope, have a hopeful point of view. Secondly, if, if tribalism exists, we can, ex, we can ex, extend the definition of what tribe means. I don't have to eliminate you from my tribe because you're an Orthodox Jew, and I don't have to eliminate Corey from my tribe because he's a Christian. Um, but more importantly, so that's one thing. If, if you if you believe in that, then some of the work to be done could be letting other people get into that tribe, you know, and, and part of being raised a Jew, even if I don't embrace Judaism, is to me never again. Did it mean never again to Jews? It meant never again. And, and I and I think too many Jewish people don't get that. And, and they're hugging on to a U.S. government and an and Israeli government that is extraordinarily oppressive. And. Also, I just want to repeat, there was another response to 9-11 that could have happened, and it would have grossly changed the course of history. And, and, and I don't feel terribly optimistic about what the response to yesterday is going to be, but I just want to point out there is a response that doesn't include having the military on, on the Capitol steps, especially when the military wasn't on the Capitol steps yesterday intentionally. With. It was intentional. It was not an accident. It was not an oversight. It was not because we didn't see this coming. It's because the person in charge of that wanted the government overthrown. And we need to speak the same way we can't say Obamacare and we can't say fake news. We can't talk about like, oh, it seems to have been. A, he stood in the middle and he said, go attack them. It, it is what like, again, it's facts. Mm. And, 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 I, and I'm very disturbed by a country that now debates facts. And, and I think social media is very, very much a tool. Everybody all of a sudden thinks they're an expert. People think it makes things more democratic. Sure, on some level, more people have access, but, but really what it's done is it's elevated this idea that expertise and, and, and knowledge are not as important anymore. And that's very, and, and also like what Corey was saying, the mob mentality rules. I agree with you completely. The problem is that we have social media and it's not going away. Mm. I, I, I think what Donald Trump did was the same thing as, as going into a, a, a movie theater and screaming fire. And that's not legal. And whether you do it on social media or, or, or in a real movie theater now, we need to start acknowledging that there's an equivalency. I agree. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if my response here will age well, but I, I, I did think yesterday when it was happening and the ease with which they did breach the Capitol, you know, there is the head of the executive branch who is ultimately the head of Homeland Security, who, you know, like, so listen, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, if, if you will, but there is a very clear chain of command there. Um, so I, I gosh, there, there's a lot of not just questions, but just downright terrifying concerns um, that, that are left to be answered. You know, for five years on Facebook, I've been 
criticizing friends who compare Trump to Hitler because I think it trivializes Hitler. And I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Hitler, uh, excuse me, Donald Trump may be historically ignorant, but he knows about the Reichstag fire. He knows about that because yesterday was directly out of that script. I think I think as soon as more of us embrace the reality of our country and the reality of our leaders, the better we will be. Um, and, and there are other democracies that are not flawless, but they're doing it better. And, and we need to get rid of, rid of the Electoral College. We need to acknowledge that the police in the United States historically, they come out of a racist history. And, and we need to just acknowledge what is there and, and work on fixing it. I mean, you know, kind of end of story. And like I said, we're all in our unique positions in our different, you know, different communities. Some are overlapping, some are not to do whichever work we choose. You know, um, I don't think my work is to speak to white male extremists. Um, I don't have access to them and I, I'm nothing they believe in or agree with. And, and maybe there isn't a whole lot there to deal with, but I, I do think that, um, you know, when they stormed the Capitol building in, in Michigan, like, again, believe people when they tell you that. The, the, the Michigan militia existed before I went to University of Michigan. It's evolved and they're still there. Before I was there, it was the KKK. It's the same group of people evolving their hatred. The Bundy family has like, my understanding is like a 50,000 people following, many of them armed, you know, like, again, this is, this is not new information. And it's still upsetting to what, you know, I've been calling the US a dying empire for years, but it's still painful to be a part of it. What you've been saying kind of brings up a, a question I was gonna ask you and, and it's, it almost seems trivial actually, but <clears throat> maybe in the bigger picture, it's not. The, the way the Georgia Senate races played out made me wonder what the long-term effects would be as, as we interpret the election. But there's a particular question within that. And that is, does it force a more clear distinction where those who are not election fraud conspiracy mongers, there's a separation between them and others who maybe have fiscally conservative policies that call themselves Republican or maybe identified as Republican, that they now have to separate themselves in a, in a much more significant way. And here's where the rubber meets the road in terms of what you're talking about. Who, who in these various circles can I find common cause with? You know, and I was really thinking about that yesterday. I, 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 there's some of my friends, the, the, the line is, if you voted for Trump, that's it. Um, I, I, we, we can't talk anymore. There's no reason for us to talk anymore. I don't want to draw the line there. You know, I don't, I don't even want to necessarily draw the line with somebody who says that they supported his policies, even if, you know, some of my more diplomatic friends would say I had to put him on mute and, and that's the way I was able to support his policies. So at the very least, I know that those who still were saying that there was such great fraud that the election was stolen. Again, it's like freedom, freedom of speech, freedom, freedoms and rights are really responsibilities. Um, and, and those, certainly those who stormed the Capitol yesterday, 
displayed the fact that they weren't responsible with their freedoms and their rights. So I'm not saying that I don't believe in the freedom of speech, but I, I am saying that, you know, there, there should be a timeout at the very least. You know, I, I don't know if I would even, no, actually I will say it. I can't bring myself to find common cause with someone who would storm the Capitol based on the notion that the election was stolen. And I'm not suggesting that you do. What's getting lost, and I haven't seen it, I haven't seen it any place, but the thing that strikes me is how amazing is it that a black man and a Jew got elected <laughs> in Georgia? In Georgia. I mean, yeah. it's like a hundred years or so since a Jew was lynched in Georgia, let alone scores of black people. And Georgia elected a black man and a Jew. I think the first woman elected to the Senate was from Georgia. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I know thought that. it was Maine. I was doing research for a play yesterday and it was very, you know, again, because, you know, a lot of my work deals with prejudice and stereotyping. And, and that's part of what was fun about that introduction to hypocrites and strippers, because it turns it on its head, right? Like, like all of a sudden Jill is trying to outqueer the conservative, right? Because, and, and there's also a very, it's very real, right? Like if you were to come into, I don't know, a group of my friends, Corey, you'd be the outcast, right? Like, of course you'd fit in because you're endearing and whatever, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like it would be, it would be similar to I would, how I would feel if I walked into the church, not because I don't like the people, but because in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know, if they found out, what would they feel? Margaret Chase Smith from Maine was the first female senator. There was, sorry, go ahead. I, I just wanted to throw that in. I don't think that's true. If you go to the Senate's website, the it's 1922, I think it was, or whatever it was, it was the thing that was interesting to me. It was Georgia, Arkansas, Louisiana, all Southern states that the, um, that the first female senators were from. And it just changes the narrative a little bit. Do, do you know what I mean? And it starts talking about um, like, like we have this image of, of the South. We have this image of different places and different things. And what if the reason the South has been voting this way is because of voter suppression? What if the South isn't really that way? What if, what if we saw after, after people were given freedom, they saw how things were going and they're like, wait, quick, we need to, we need to start, you know, slavery ended, things are heading in this way. We need to do something to turn it around. That's my point. Whether it was technically Maine or Georgia, the, the, the list of the beginning female senators was, it was Georgia. It was, and yes, Maine was up there, but I thought it was the fourth or fifth one. But anyway, Georgia, Louisiana, um, I think Alabama. So it's just interesting when you talk about the history of the country that, that we have this narrative that isn't true. And I think a lot of us buy into these untrue narratives. And that's a lot of what my work is a, touches on and also how we do it to each other. You, you know what I mean? Like we somehow find no matter what it is, it could be a whole group of white people, but yet we'll figure out a way to otherize people and, and to what end, right? You know, like how is that really serving us? So to bring this conversation sort of full circle, as surprising as this may sound, by the end of Hypocrites and Strippers, I identified more with Jill than with the, um, the Jewish Christian character at the beginning. And, and here's why. And she, she sort of teases it at the beginning when she, set, she talks about, she's basically objecting to 
her high school, old high school acquaintance on several grounds, but one of which was like, maybe she was objecting to herself. Like you can't, you can't put me in a box. Like, why are you identifying me based on this one bit of information that, that you've gleaned, you know, and it ended up being like a friendly interaction in that first one. But I, I think a lot of what she's saying right at the top of the play is like kind of how you're talking about queer Well, what's queer, you know, like any one of us, if you only know that one thing, you don't really know us, you know, mm-hmm. and each one of us has any number of ingredients that make up the whole recipe and none of those recipes are exactly the same, but there's a lot of the same ingredients in a lot of those recipes. And I think maybe that's where, that's where we can work. That's where we can work to, to find that common cause, to find that common identity that, like I said, like by the end of that play, I was, I was identifying more with Jill and her individuality and the uniqueness and the queerness, if you will, of like, that's a different like makeup. That's a different set of ingredients kind of a thing. I don't know if I'm making any sense. That doesn't really surprise me though, because I think you do feel queer. I mean, I, th- I think I think that's part of what the story is getting at really. Do, do you know what I mean? And your dad was joking about it, but there's this sense of you, even in the community that's deeply, deeply your community, there's moments of otherness, right? Um, and and I think, you know, I, I refer to it as building your empathy muscle. Mm. And, and, and that's, like, I think there does come a point where we have to stand up and walk out or whatever, whatever it is, we have to be strong. Um, Cause what's, what's the point of having access or power if you're never going to take a stand and you're just going to work to like hold, uh, hold your, your government position or whatever it is. But, um, but if we could build our empathy muscle and even if it's the, not the exact same mode of otherness, to just know that we all have had an experience of what otherness feels like. Yeah. And, and instead of like, I was just talking about this with, um, you know, in the sense of being a PA, like when I, when I became a writer's assistant, a producer's assistant, I didn't do to other PAs what was done to me. And I never understood that. Like I never understood that, um, that cycle. And to me, all of it. So yeah, Hazing. hazing. Yeah. I never, I never understood it. And I, I don't think I ever will. And to me, I don't, you know, like, you know, like I keep, I keep saying that, like, I feel like I'm living in Harry Potter or Star Wars, you know, and even before COVID, I felt like that, you know, like, but with the advent of COVID and the mask wearers versus the not mask wearers is like, it really feels like this rebel group of people now who are holding on to certain things. And, um, and, and to just know that when, when Obama got elected, there was a large group of people who felt the same way a lot of us did when Trump got elected. Now, having said that, again, I will reiterate that one has to take a stand. Like you, you can't just say, well, I don't care what he's saying. I don't care what he's doing to democracy. I don't care what he's doing to our government because I'm wealthier or I'm more comfortable or this or that or the policies benefit me. There's a point at which things have gone too far. And we, well, we passed that a very long time ago. And it's been, it's a shame on the conservatives and the Republican parties for aiding and abetting this for so long. You know, this is an inevitable ending. I agree. Well, there was so much of your story that we didn't get into. We didn't get into your time at the UN. We'll or bring it back. The State Department. Yeah, we should talk talk more 
we can have a reunion with Harrison and Kim. And- <laughs> right. Only, only if Eddie's on the call. Paige. <laughs> yeah, Paige. Oh, God. Um, I, uh, sorry. <laughs> Paige is listening. I had a, uh, a reaction that, um, no, I, I, because I'm imagining all of these people in the same virtual room together, and I'm just trying to. Well, uh, just plan a five-hour podcast. Right. Um, were, were there topics that you wanted to, uh, before we get into Al Ruad, um, I, I, are there topics that you wanted to make sure that we, we covered? No, I mean, I, I, I just was, you know, I'm, I'm flattered that you invited me. I'm happy to have the conversation. I, I hope it's of some use. Um, you know, it's, it's always good to, to share thoughts and ideas. Um, yeah. And, and thank you guys for your honesty and, and the, and the conversation. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover pop? Just wanted to say thanks, Kim. I had such a great time meeting you and <laughs> speaking with you. And I enjoyed this. I, I genuinely just from my heart, I just really, really enjoy hanging out with you. Um, so I'll I'm, I'm, I'm following you now. <laughs> well, not, I'm, I'm going to have I'm, I'm working on I'm working on plays now, not on on essays. So so um, I hope you'll have patience with me because it may be a minute before I. I, I do any po- political essays, but I'll, I'll work on it. I'll have to buy one of your plays. <laughs> I, I, I won't argue with that. I'm waiting for the one whose setting is in Montana. That'll be uh, interesting. <laughs> um, so you want to tell us about, is, am I saying that right? Alrod? Alrod, yeah. Um, uh, I met this extraordinary guy, Abdel Fattah. It was, it was actually speaking of the State Department. When, when I was working for the Department of State, I, I asked for permission to go volunteer in Palestine. And um, unfortunately, ultimately, they rescinded that permission, but I did get to go visit and I and I met him and he's doing social justice, social change work through the arts. And um, he's just an extraordinary, 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 amazing human. I met him, his family took me home and they started from like a little office and I haven't been back, but they have like a whole center now and they're teaching filmmaking and dance like and, and all every every part of the arts. To, to young people primarily. And I also think they have stuff focused on helping women, supporting women. Um, so I'm, I'm just a lover of him and all of their work. So I want to spell the website. It's A-L-R-O-W-W-A-D-U-S-A.org. Alrowadusa.org. A-L-R-O-W-W-A-D-U-S-A.org slash donate. So Kim Yeged. Thank you so much for doing this and taking the time. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Pop. Thank you. Let's uh, let's hang out again real soon, okay? When, whenever you want, you let me know. You know, I'm 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 locked in here. <laughs> okay, sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>